Well, hey there, Cove Church. My name is Brandon. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors on staff. We are in week two of our series, All is Bright. And the title of my message is this, All is Bright, Carrying the Light of Joy. Uh, in the late 1940s, the United States commissioned the building of a ship called the USS United States. And uh, it, it was a troop carrier, uh, which was designed to carry about 15,000 troops in to battle. It was the fastest, most reliable ship in the world. It could travel uh, 10,000 miles, for instance, without having to uh, refuel or restock. Uh, it could outrun certainly any ship in its class and many other ships in other classes of warships. How about this? It could go anywhere. Think about this in the late 40s, early 50s. It could go anywhere on the planet in under 10 days. The only catch is this. It never carried troops into battle. It was put on alert once during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Instead, it was repurposed as a luxury liner for heads of state and presidents and celebrities. As a luxury liner, it could only carry about 2,000 patrons who could enjoy the 695 staterooms, four dining rooms, three bars, two theaters, five acres of open deck, a heated pool, 19 elevators, and the comforts of the world's first fully air-conditioned passenger ship. I want to come back to the USS United States here in a few minutes. Our text today is going to be Revelation 12 verses 1 through 6. I'm going to read it from the English Standard Version. And uh, some of you are already ahead of me and you're wondering what in the world is Pastor Brandon doing preaching out of Revelation during a Christmas series? You're going to have to pull a rabbit out of your hat. Uh, so that's not going to happen. Don't have a rabbit, don't have a hat, but I do have Revelation 12. So here we go. Uh, and I'll unpack a few things. Give us some context. Revelation 12 verses 1 through 6. The title kind of in this section of the ESV says this, the woman and the dragon. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and her head on her head, a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant. It was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems or crowns, if you will. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That, that word uh, to rule is to shepherd, actually. With a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. I started thinking about our series. And I started thinking about the Christmas story and this message. And uh, maybe you read Luke chapter two or some portion of the Christmas story around Christmas with your family. The word joy is used no less than eight times, some derivative of the word joy when we read the Christmas story. And I want to, I want to kind of set uh, uh, 
Revelation 12 on a chassis uh, of a definition of joy. Uh, it's not the only definition. It's not a perfect definition, but it's a beautiful definition. It comes from author Kay Warren, who is the spouse of Pastor Rick Warren, Saddleback Church in Southern California. And she wrote a book a few years ago called Choose Joy. And she says this, joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of every detail of my life. The quiet confidence that ultimately everything will be all right. And the determined choice to praise God in all things. I love that. A little background on Revelation. Uh, anyone who tells you that they have the book of Revelation figured out probably does not. Uh, I think my favorite theologians who wrestle with the book of Revelation are those who um, do it with a tremendous amount of humility and embrace the mystery contained in Revelation. And so since we're going to reference it quite a bit, I, I want to I hit on a few things that may help us, not just with Revelation 12, but with the sum total of Revelation. Uh, Revelation is known as the apocalypse, and that does not mean the end of the world. Uh, it's, it's a word that simply means revelation. There have been all kinds of weird stuff done and taught and predicted in the name, uh, in, in an attempt to get our minds around the book of Revelation. Some of you have heard it. Some of you have studied it. Uh, many have tried to predict who the Antichrist is based on the book of Revelation. Interestingly enough, that word Antichrist doesn't even exist in the book of Revelation. Now, some of you just hearing that right there, your ears kind of fell off and you went to your search engine uh, to see if that is the truth. Some thought Nero was the Antichrist, some thought Hitler, some thought Kennedy when he was shot in the head, others thought Reagan, some thought Obama. Certainly many probably think Trump is the Antichrist. Harold Camping recently uh, predicted the return of Christ to be on May 21st, very specific, May 21st, 2011. What's interesting is this came on the heels of uh, another prediction that he made that the end of the world as we know it would come on September 6th, 1994. Big whoops on that. There's a very popular book series called Left Behind. Uh, that gave comfort to many and gave rise to concern to many others. If we were to place some word association uh, with the book of Revelation, what comes to your mind uh, when, when we talk about Revelation, for some it would be the end. It would be maybe the rapture or the number seven or the four horsemen or the Antichrist or 666 or judgment or vengeance, the second coming, perhaps heaven. There's a lot of mystery a lot of confusion, a lot of misunderstanding with this book called Revelation, but here's the deal, you're not alone. Uh, what's interesting is a stalwart of the faith known as Martin Luther actually really struggled with the book of Revelation. I've said before that he really didn't like the book of James. He wanted that out of the Bible some thousand years after the Bible was effectively put together and canonized. And I think he kind of felt the same way about Revelation. In fact, here's a quote from Luther. He says this, he says, neither apostolic nor prophetic. Can you imagine this? Neither apostolic nor prophetic. I can in no way detect that the Holy Spirit produced it. Again, they are supposed to be blessed who keep what is written in this book, and yet no one knows what it is to say nothing of keeping it. Christ is neither taught nor known in it. The great Martin Luther writing it about 1522. Uh, in my hometown, 
of Vancouver every year, there, there was this uh, beautiful Seventh-day Adventist church uh, that would, a couple of times a year, send out, I, I would get them uh, every year in my mailbox, these big, beautiful flyers uh, with red dragons and the Antichrist and God and heaven and hell and, you know, 666 and Revelation and Ezekiel, Daniel, come hear the mysteries of the end times. And yet for all of this, Cove Church, for all of this, Brandon, what's the point? For all of this, for all of the confusion, the mystery and the misunderstanding, there's this beautiful promise that we have in Revelation 1-3, and uh, Luther actually alluded to it. And it's this, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So, uh, Coaches, what I want to do is I want to give you what are called a few just kind of hermeneutical lenses when it comes to revelation. Brandon, what is that? Just, just when, I, when, we, when we talk about hermeneutics, it's just lenses that we use that have been kind of proven over time to help us interpret the Bible. And there's a lot of interpretation with revelation. I realize it's a risk to preach from it, especially uh, during a Christmas series. Why else would I do it? I, I understand the misunderstanding. I understand the confusion. But I also know that there's a promise here and we want to read it. We want to study it. We can't, we can't read, you know, 65 other books of the Bible and just leave out Revelation. Here's another reason I would do this. Many of you follow the Life Journal and we end the year every year, right around this time, December, we end the year reading the entire book of Revelation. So a couple of lenses that may help you, kind of a 30,000 foot view. Number one, the centering vision of Revelation is the sacrificial King Jesus. What's interesting is from chapter four on, we, we read the word throne 43 times and the word lamb at least 28 times. The word throne, speaking of a king and, and the word lamb emblematic of sacrifice. It's, it's the centering vision of Revelation is the sacrificial King Jesus. Look for it as you read Revelation. Number two, Revelations is a summons to first commandment faithfulness, especially when we read the warnings and the summons, uh, uh, the, the, the dire warnings to the seven churches of Revelation. It's a summons back to first commandment faithfulness. Well, Brandon, what is that first commandment? You know this church. In fact, even if you're not a Christ follower, you've probably heard this before, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. And finally, number three, it's a liturgical text. That word liturgical uh, w w really means worship in, in many ways. So I, I want you to listen to New Testament scholar, Michael Gorman. He unpacks this idea of revelation as a liturgical text. He says the term liturgy or the public service of a people has to do with worship. Worship, a word derived from the old English that means worth-ship or worthiness. It can be defined as acknowledging the worthiness of God and God alone, especially as creator and redeemer. Listen to this. No New Testament book does this more poetically or powerfully than Revelation, where the essential word spoken to God the Creator and Christ the Redeemer is, You are worthy. It's a liturgical text. So church, this may be an oversimplification. Maybe we can condense all three of these lenses down into one kind of 50,000 foot lens to read and interpret, to help read and interpret Revelation. Revelation is a summons to faithfully worship God and his son, 
Jesus Christ. Revelation 12, let's scope down now to Revelation 12 and see if we can prove uh, uh, Luther wrong. For all uh, the theologians who will disagree and um, fight about uh, the interpretation of Revelation, for all the disagreement among pastors and Christ followers, any theologian of consequence uh, would not dispute a few key things about Revelation 12. Number one, this is the incarnation we find here in verses one through six, the incarnation and the ascension of Christ. That's number one. Number two, the dragon is Satan. In fact, if you read further in the text, it says it right in the text that this is Satan. And number three, the woman is either Mary representing all humanity or God himself. I could be convinced, you know, either way, but most theologians would not dispute at least those three things. Now, some of you are already racing ahead and you're saying, okay, Pastor Brandon, I, I, I can see in the text Jesus being born and I can see, so the incarnation of, of Jesus, and I can see the ascension of Jesus to the throne room of heaven, but where's the crucifixion of Jesus? Good catch. It's actually found in the word caught up or another translation says snatched. He, he was caught up to God or he was snatched up to God. That word at its core means taking something that does not belong to you. And so the implication, very strong implication in Revelation 12 is that the dragon got the child. And we know that Jesus was crucified. And so we find in Revelation 12, a very different picture of what happened some 2000 years ago at the nativity, at the birth of Jesus. It's mysterious, it's, it's highly supernatural. And so maybe you're setting up the nativity in your home. Maybe it's already set up. For the Berg family, for the longest time, we had a nativity that looked like this. It was the Costco special, right? And it had the, um, that wonky, weird angel with the um, disturbingly long horn, and you don't know quite what to do with it, so you kind of set it off to the side, trying to find a place for the angel. That's about as supernatural as the nativity would get. The wise men were there, even though that's not really in the Bible. And then there's kind of that weird looking Jesus with his arms up. I don't know what that means, if he's gonna give somebody a hug or bring it in or um, wanting to give the entire world a hug, I don't know. But it's odd, it's awkward, and for years we had it set out in the Berg home. What's interesting and what I believe is your nativity probably doesn't include this right here. A fire breathing red dragon. So my question, my question, Cove Church, is this. Was all bright that night? Was it really all bright? Was it really all calm? See, Revelation kind of drops the veil on what was really going on that night. We sing songs like Silent Night, Holy Night. All is calm, all is bright. Was it really calm? Oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see the lie. How about this? How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. I don't know how silent it was that night, certainly in the spiritual realm. Brandon, what's the point? Church, I wonder, I just wonder if we've kind of veiled and mischaracterized and sanitized what was really going on that night some 2,000 years ago. Silent, maybe at times. Wonderful that a Savior was born, of course. But that idea that all was calm 
and that all was bright just is not quite accurate. So three things, three things at least that Revelation 12, I think, should remind us of and hopefully remind you as you set up your nativity, as you see your friend's nativity, as, as you see nativity sets around town, maybe in people's yards. Number one, the supernatural birth of Christ reminds us of the supernatural. Number two, the manger reminds us of mission. And number three, the manger reminds us joy shines in the darkest hour. Let's take them one at a time. The first one, the supernatural birth of Christ reminds us of the supernatural. Cove Church, listen, the, the incarnation of Jesus was nothing less than an all-out assault on Satan's zip code. 1 John chapter 3 says this, For this purpose, the Son of God was manifest, to destroy the work of the devil. Oh, what a cute little baby. I wonder what his destiny is. It's to destroy the work of the devil. What Revelation 12 reminds us of, at least, is that we are in a battle. And it's not fought with guns and political offices and bully pulpits. It's a spiritual battle. It reminds me of a story in the Old Testament. Second Kings chapter six, uh, Elisha. I've told this story a few times and you've read it, hopefully know it well. But if not, it goes like this. Elisha was one of the most popular prophets in Israel's history and he has this servant and he's in a place called Dothan and the king of Aram is angry with Elisha and so he sends an army of horses and chariots and soldiers to surround him. Uh, at night. And the next morning, his uh, servant wakes up and grabs his cup of coffee and puts on his robe and stumbles outside and begins to sip his coffee. And he looks and he sees this army surrounding him and the prophet. So he goes back in and he wakes the boss up and he says, hey, listen, boss, we got a problem. And Elisha says this. He says, listen, don't worry about it. There's more with us than there are with them. To which his servant says, okay, he's anointed by God and has a degree in theology, but certainly not mathematics. I just don't see how this adds up. And Elisha prays this prayer. He says, God, would you open his eyes? Would you drop the veil so that he can see? And God does. And he looks again and he sees an army of fire, horses and chariots. And indeed, there's more with them than there are with the enemy. What's the point? Brandon, what's the point? Sometimes, Cove Church, I think we're, we're like Elisha's servant where we're blind to the spiritual battle around us or we choose not to acknowledge it because in our day and age, to choose to acknowledge the spiritual uh, battle could, could earn us a reputation, right? We, we, we live in a day, show me the science, show me the empirical data and, and to reference anything spiritual, it's like you might as well say that you believe in Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy. It's like, you, you're weird. And here's the deal. The enemy loves that. The enemy loves to lurk in the shadows. It's, it's one of his best lies. It's like, I'm not here. Nothing to see here. Just keep moving on with your life. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. And if you've not read it, it's a wonderful book. I'd grab it. I'd read it. The premise is kind of this dialogue, this correspondence between a senior devil and a junior devil named Wormwood. And uh, the senior devil writes to Wormwood. He says, my dear Wormwood, I wonder you should ask me whether it is essential to keep the patient, maybe us, your subject, the subject that you're demonically working on, to keep the patient in ignorance of our own existence. 
That question, at least for the present phase of the struggle, has been answered for us by the high command. In other words, Satan himself. Our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. Of a friend, his name's Steve. He gave me permission to share this story. Several years back, he was in process of becoming a Christ follower. He was on this spiritual journey and he was getting his life back on track. And um, he, uh, he found himself on hard times and he was staying with a friend. It happened to be a drug house. It wasn't his first choice. It, it, it's, it's not what he, he would choose, but he, he was, it was just a pinch. It was a tough time. And I got a text one night, he said, Brandon, I'm really scared. I, I need you to pray. I need to talk. So we got on the phone and he began to detail to me probably seven or eight specific instances of, of demonic activity and actually witnessing and seeing the demonic. It scared him. The veil was dropped. The supernatural was brought front and center. If you read on in our text, Verse 17, Roman, uh, excuse me, Revelation 12 and verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. This would be us. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand and of the sea. Listen to the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 4. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. We're waging war. It's just not according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Cove Church, listen, in the hustle and bustle and the buying uh, amidst family and all of the distractions, maybe planned distractions, even to just get away from everything that we've been walking through in 2020. May we never forget the supernatural birth of Christ reminds us of the supernatural there's a very real enemy of our soul furious with us because of our standing and redemption in Christ, waging war against us. One last personal story, and I'll move on to number two. I'll say a couple of years ago, I was on vacation. Joy and I were on vacation, and I was walking through a definitive, marked, very clear spiritual attack. And out of the blue, I received a text from a friend that I don't talk with. I don't talk with him weekly, monthly, maybe once a year, maybe. And even when I do talk with this person, it's, it's more business because of kind of who they are and just their function in my life. It's just how the relationship works. And so, but he texted me, he said, Hey, is everything okay? Um, was just praying for you and just want to make sure. And I was so surprised by that because what I was walking through, I knew the Holy Spirit was up to something, that the veil was being dropped on the supernatural. And I said, we might need to talk. He called me immediately, said, let me tell you a story. I came home uh, last night and I was tired and I laid down on the bed and I turned on the TV to watch a movie. Guess what movie he was watching? He was watching Napoleon Dynamite. Pretty pedestrian evening. And all of a sudden his heart starts racing and I pop into his mind, uh, me and Joy and our family. And he's so distracted by that, he can't concentrate on anything else. He turns the TV off, sits up on the, the edge of his bed, and God gives him a vision of the spiritual warfare that we were walking through. And he recounted to me what he saw in this vision, and he was dead on. 
Cove Church, may we wake up, even through this Christmas season, may we wake up to the spiritual battle around us like Elisha's servant. May we put on the armor of God, Ephesians chapter six, and do battle. And may we always remember that there's more with us than there are with them. Number two, the manger reminds us of mission. The manger reminds us of mission. Cove Church, listen, there is no justifiable reason to abandon the riches of heaven, to put on skin of frail humanity, to become a baby born in the dirt around smelly animals at a time of Roman occupation to fully feel the pain of human need and suffering, to face the fury of a bloodthirsty enemy, unless, unless church, you have a very specific purpose in doing so. Unless you have a plan, unless you are so consumed with passion for a very specific mission. Listen to a few verses about what that mission might be. John 10 and verse 10 from the New Living Translation, the thief's purpose, these are Jesus's words. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. One translation says that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Luke 19 and verse 10, for the son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. Brandon, what's the mission of Jesus Christ? To seek and save those who are lost. How about Luke 5, 31 and 32? Jesus answered them, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they're righteous, but those who know they're sinners and need to repent. Pastor Brown, what's the point? The point is Christ's mission was you, unless you think you're fully righteous. His mission was you. Pastor Brandon, that can't be. That, that can't be. There has to have been something. That's too expensive. It's too painful. It costs heaven too much. There has to be some sort of incentive for Jesus himself. Friends, hear me. No. He emptied himself. I believe that's Philippians chapter 2. He emptied himself for you. You were his prize. You were his mission. He loves you. And that manger, that nativity that you set up is a perpetual reminder of this unrelenting mission to chase you down and to restore you to right relationship with himself. Why? Because of his great love for you. The manger reminds us of mission. And finally, the manger reminds us that joy shines in the darkest hour. Revelation 12 again drops the curtain on the birth of Jesus and reminds us that not all was bright, not all was calm, not all was silent, and yet joy was born that night. Friends, I'm going to read one of the most um, amazing portions of scripture in all of the Bible. In fact, when I read it, it it's, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around. I don't know that I even fully understand it. I certainly don't. And I find myself, when I read this portion of scripture, this verse, I find myself grasping and reaching for different ways to interpret it because it, it can't be really what it means on the surface. And yet I believe it does the more I read it. It's found in Hebrews 12. In verse two, the writer of Hebrews says this, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That word joy, it means rejoicing. It's happiness. It's gladness. Pastor Brandon, that can't be right. The cross, joy in the cross for the joy set before him. Listen to it in the Passion Translation. We look away from the natural realm and fasten our gaze onto Jesus who birthed faith within us and who leads us forward into faith's perfection. His example is this, because his heart was focused on the joy, because his heart was focused on the joy of knowing that you would be his. He endured the agony of the cross and conquered its humiliation and now sits exalted at the right hand of the throne of God for the joy set before him, for the joy, for the joy of knowing that you would be his. The manger reminds us that joy shines in the darkest hour. I want to circle back to our definition of joy by Kay Warren. Again, joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of every detail in my life. It's almost, friends, as if she wrote this years ago for 2020, for what we're walking through with COVID. Let me start over. Joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of every detail in my life. The quiet confidence that ultimately everything will be all right and the determined choice to praise God in all things. Cove Church, I wanna circle back to the USS United States. I feel like this ship is probably emblematic of many Christians. In fact, I'll put myself at the front of the list where we're designed for one purpose, but never really function in that realm. Maybe never really see or acknowledge that realm. The, the veil is never dropped in our lives maybe never engaging the battle, rather embracing or entertaining a more comfortable lifestyle. Perhaps blind to the original mission. Coaches, listen, I think there's something I know about you. You've, you've had dark moments this year. You, you've wondered how you would make it, or even if you would make it. Job, bills, health, loss, depression, crushing disappointment, rejection. What's interesting is Joy and I revamped our nativity. In fact, here's a picture of the nativity that we set up last year and we'll set up this year again. You'll notice the nativity there on your left and you'll notice if you scan to the right, a big red dragon. Well, Pastor Brandon, that's really weird. I know it's weird, but it reminds me of the supernatural. It reminds me that the, the, the manger reminds me of mission. And it's a reminder to me that joy shines in the darkest hour. And as you set up your nativity, may it remind you of the same. I wanna give you the opportunity, if you've never turned your life over to Jesus, to do that now. If you would say, Pastor Brandon, I, I, I wanna begin to follow Jesus. 
I've never really followed him in my life. I've never really kind of crossed the line of faith. I don't know everything that it means. That's okay. I don't know everything that it means. But you would say, Pastor Brown, I want to raise my hand. In fact, you can do that. If you just scan to the bottom of your screen there, you'll see a little icon that, that says, I, you know, I raise my hand. I'm saying yes to Jesus today. Why don't you click that? And I want to lead you in a prayer. I want you to just, just repeat this after me. There's no magic in this prayer. It's, it's not, it, um, you know, it's not directly quoted from scripture. I just want to lead you in this prayer. Why don't you pray this with me? Wherever you're at, maybe you're on a hike, maybe you're still laying in bed, maybe you're around the breakfast table, sitting on the couch, wherever you're at. If you would say, I want to turn my life over to Jesus for the first time, pray this with me. Jesus, I need you. Today, I cross the line of faith. I ask you to take up residence in my life. Forgive me of my sin. Fill me with your spirit. Help me to become more like you, to look more like you. I need you. I declare today that you're my savior. Thank you for your mission in chasing me down. Unveil my eyes to the supernatural. Help me to live out what I was designed to do. And help me to remember always that joy, joy shines in the darkest hour. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Bless you, Cove Church. Have a great week.